through. Brian, are you there? Yeah. My the, everything just kind of froze for a second. James, are you there? Yes, I am. Okay, so let's just start all over. Hello, everybody. <laughs> and this is Danya Williams, and we're here today with our guest, um, James Morgan. He wrote the book, The Lost Empire. We're going to talk to him about the Black Freemasons in the Old West. So thank you for joining us, Brian, um, James. Oh, I'm happy, I'm happy to be here, and I'm sure, uh, you know, we're thankful Brian's here, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. For whatever reason, you guys, Brian is kind of frozen, and we don't know why, but you can hear him, so everything should be good. That's good. That's good. Yeah, everybody was telling me there's no sound and everything. So let's just get into those people right now. And um, we got Toy Wright Anders, which is my our cousin, Brian and I cousin. She says, I'm here, cousins. And then we have good afternoon from Denise and Martha Marshall, another family member from South Carolina. And then... <laughs> Yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Well, Lamonica, this is um actually a, a a post that was left right on this particular thing. So I don't think that that's her unless she just got on. <laughs> um, they said your your audio is garbled, Brian. Denise Denicia said that. Okay, but anyway. Let's just get right to it. So um, what we're going to discuss today, I know you guys have had some times where you've come across Freemasons, whether um, it be black Freemasons or white Freemasons. Well, James, in my opinion, is an expert in researching them. And he wrote this wonderful book about um, a man named William, Captain William Matthews, Captain William Matthews. And we wanted to share it. We want you guys to know about it and really get involved and hopefully, you know, we'll post the link up, of course, to purchase it as well. So I wanna start with, you know, just James, tell us how you got into researching as a whole. Uh, as a whole, uh, that's a good question. Um, I don't think I ever really stopped. Uh, I, you know, just being in school and whatnot, um, you know, I've always been into history and everything like that uh, from a pretty young age. Um, you know, I, I often tell people that uh, when I was born, you know, I was a child. Um, everybody in my family was older than me. I'm, I'm my parents' firstborn child, and so when I was a kid, like there was nobody to play with that was my age. So I just kind of had to like grow up fast, and uh, I was very aware that there was a world before me. You know, uh, I was very close to my grandparents and whatnot. So uh, my great grandfather's still living. So I've always wanted to, um, to, to, to learn about that world that, that came before me and how, how I got here and what my what my role was in this, you know, larger story of not just my family, but just, you know, the world as a whole. Um, more specifically, you know, to 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 the book and, and the topic of today's discussion, uh, I became a Mason in 2010 uh, here in Washington D.C. Uh, I've served as the leader of my lodge, or the, the the proper phrase is the worshipful master. So I did that for uh, in, for 2015 and 2016, uh, which was you know a real big honor. 
Uh, I'm now the Grand Historian for the uh, Prince Hall Grand Lodge of the District of Columbia, and uh, which is, again, an honor and a privilege uh, to serve in that position. And one of the reasons why it became fascinating to me as a topic is because when I first got a um, curiosity about the fraternity, um, I was very curious about masonry. You know, sometimes people see these shows on the History Channel or what have you, and that's all well and good. You know, people see these conspiracy theory type of films and whatnot, um, but I became exposed, you know, pretty early, honestly, to uh, the fact that there were Caucasian masons and there were African American masons, just right. like everything else in our society, right? Right. Uh, so, so in terms of so in, in learning the history of uh, black masonry and whatnot, and how far back it went, um, I, I said, wow, there's a whole knowledge base here uh, that really isn't discussed um, a lot. Um, having come out of a, uh, a rites of passage program myself when I was a teenager, I saw similarities in the organization to what I had already been a part of, and I said, wow, this is, this is a type of organization and a tradition that helped men mark manhood and that, that transition from boyhood to manhood. And, wow. um, you know, I really wanted to learn more about it. Um, and so I, you know, I signed up and, uh, just kind of dived right in, uh, and started seeing, uh, dots that, that needed to be connected. And, uh, I just started contributing to that conversation, um, over the past almost 10 years now. So, wow. Okay. In the 1770s, uh, is the early. Yes, yes. Uh, the traditional history uh, to give everybody an understanding of. First of all, let's go back. What is Freemasonry? Who are we? Uh, we are the world's oldest uh, and largest gentlemen's uh, fraternity. Uh, you know, our our history is founded in myth and legend, and I can get into all that, but we, but I'll save save you all the trouble. Um, <laughs> to, to to bring it up to the more modern day. Um, in the right around 1717, 1720s, there's some debates about that now. Uh, what we call Grand Lodge Freemasonry was established, meaning the formal organization as we kind of know it today. Um, it moves into the British colonies, you know, here in the, what we now call the United States. And in the 1770s, again, our traditional history is 1775. Uh, there's some more recent uh, research that uh, is kind of pulling that date into debate now, and some, some are saying 1778. Regardless, uh, we know that uh, a man by the name of Prince Hall uh, and uh, several other men of African descent were made Masons uh, in sometime in the 1770s. And what ends up happening is that they eventually petitioned the Grand Lodge of England for a charter, which was uh, granted to them in 1784 to establish African Lodge number 459. Uh, that charter was actually physically received by them in 1787. And from there, uh, basically the, the, the Black Masonic movement spread from Boston to, um, oh man, that's, I'm sorry, hold on one second, my phone was ringing. This brother from my lodge calling me now. <laughs> uh, um, uh, the movement basically spread from Boston to uh, Philadelphia, to New York, to Connecticut, to, you know, all over the place um, pretty rapidly. Uh, given the times. Um, and, and that was the thing that I thought was most fascinating about this. This is an organization um, of black men uh, during the peak of the transatlantic slave trade uh, to, to the United States. Um, 
and they're organizing, um, they're having lectures, they're, you know, dispensing charity to uh, sick and distressed brothers, you know, uh, and they're also organizing institutions, for Masonic as well as uh, non-Masonic institutions. And so the fact that there was this history there and it was so well documented, again, was something I just found kind of fascinating. Wow. Brian, I'm getting messages stating that they can't hear you. Can you log off and come back in? Okay. So um, while Brian is logging off, what I would like to ask you is, okay, since you, yes, you're right. There is this huge mystery about masonry and, and everything. I can honestly say that my son is, well, my oldest son has always been very um, intrigued behind it. And I used to always tell him, I said, your, your curiosity is actually going to make you join it. But he swears up and down, you guys are trying to rule the world. And, and you know, I, I mean, he got this whole, it's, it's, he got, he has this whole thing that goes on when it comes to that. But I am um, trying to rule the world, but first I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to pay my rent next month. How about that? <laughs> so um, the other thing though, I think that, you said that it started back as early as in the 1700s. Yes. Um, yes. When did Mr. Matthew, when did Captain Matthews join? Okay, so to bring it forward, what happens is that um, you have the spread of Black Freemasonry uh, from the 1770s all the way through the 1800s. Now, to bring it up to the period of the book, uh, William Matthews was born in 1828. And uh, he actually becomes a Mason in um, in the 1850s. But to, there's some there's some backstory with him that to kind of contextualize it. Uh -huh. um, so Captain Matthews was born in on the eastern shore of Maryland, and uh, when he get about when he get about age 19 or 20, uh, he went to Jamaica for a couple of years. He comes back to uh, to the states, and he ends up purchasing a um, uh, a shipping vessel. To, he becomes a grain merchant going up and down the East Coast. And in the, in the mid-1850s, uh, he joins a lodge in Boston, Massachusetts, which is, of course, important because Boston is the, uh, is the home of Black Freemasonry, it's where, where we kind of started here in the United States. And so uh, that's where he joined uh, in the 1850s and kind of moves on from there. Wow, that's where, that's where Brian lives now in Boston. Brian, can you hear us? Because you're still from. I can hear you. Okay, can you guys hear Brian? Because as long as you can hear him, that's fine. For whatever reason, he's freezing. The, so, computer, the, the computer can only take but so many good-looking guys at one time. That's all it is. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's what it is. I guess that's what it is. Yeah, I am somewhat surrounded by handsome men, aren't I, right now? That's awesome. Go, Donya. So, um, well, um, what's the difference between... The, the masonry for African-Americans and the masonry for, for, um, black, uh, for white Americans? Uh, really, it's, not, uh, it's just, it's the history. Again, like everything else in America, you know, we were segregated against. So, I mean, the, 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 not to get too deep off into stuff I can't talk about, but um, it, it's the same organization, really. It's just, again, we, we, Prince Hall was initiated along with other brothers. They became Masons. They got a charter, which we, which actually is probably, uh, in my estimation, is one of the most um, historic and sacred documents in African American history. It's we still have it. It still exists. Um, you know, they had authority to, have to establish a lodge, but when 
when the white Masons of, of Massachusetts decided to form their own Grand Lodge, separating from the English, um, all the lodges in Massachusetts, you know, kind of got together. But for some strange reason, African Lodge was not invited to the party. Ah. Uh. And so over time, you know, because uh, of neglect from the white Masons here in America, and then uh, there were some, some issues administratively between us and the British, um, over time we became our own separate, you know, entity. I mean, we're still linked, we're still a part of the same organization, and today we're all uh, what we call recognized and whatnot today, but that was a long, long struggle of several generations of people to kind of get that mended, if you will. Um, but, yeah. So that actually raises a really interesting question. So say, mm -hmm. you know, we're, we're still in the slavery era. Mm -hmm. So if I was wanted to create a Black Freemason uh, chapter, what would I have to go through to make that happen? Um, essentially, not not to, not to give up, not to give away too much, but essentially you'd have to uh, you know join a lodge and get a, and get a number of gentlemen uh, of brothers who are uh, in your area who want to start a lodge up. They have to get uh, to actually request a permission or a charter from a, a grand lodge. Um, you know, and again, that's an important process right there because all these things create records um which is which is something i found fascinating because i mean a lot of like my grand lodge where i'm the grand historian um uh today uh, our first lodge was established in 1825 here in, in dc wow. so so think about it you got free black men organizing and mind you dc was you know this was we're below the mason dixon line now right mm. uh so they're organizing a lodge in 1848, we organized our Grand Lodge here in D.C. Um, you know, this is pre-Civil War. You know, and for someone like myself, who was very into history, to, to be able to kind of track those documents and those movements of people was very fascinating uh, thing to be able to do. And and as I also have been uh, have a, a very 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 uh, high addiction to genealogy, uh, I, I said, wait a second, these things you, you got somebody has to link these things together, and I wasn't really seeing anybody kind of do that in a way that uh, I saw that that was methodical um, right. and it's because a lot of people didn't have the access that I did. Um, and so, I mean, of course, being a Mason, uh, I wear my ring every day. I, I have people come up to me all the time and they say, hey, my grandfather was the grandmaster. He was a 33rd degree and he was this and he was that. And I was like, your grandfather probably wasn't a grandmaster, but he probably was something. <laughs> Let's go and look and let me show you, you know, but again, a lot of people just didn't have this type of access that I, that I have. And so, uh, you know, I kind of felt it um, a duty personally to myself as well as to the organization to kind of help tell our story, uh, particularly for the historical community, because I find a lot of times people kind of skip over or they dismiss uh, not just masonry, but black fraternal organizations as a whole. As a whole, uh, yes, you they know, do. It's a, it, but it's a very important aspect of history because Again, these organizations leave records, and it's not just about your Frederick Douglasses and your Martin Delaney's and your, you know, the big names. It's about your that's grandfather. Your, that's right. Yeah, you know, and, and as genealogists, uh, that's something that I know that uh, people are always looking for. What's the next piece of paper that's got my grandfather or my grandmother on there, you know? Right. So, yeah. So, um, respect, because I, I, you know, being a part of an organization myself, Mm -hmm. I respect the fact that I, I hear you saying, you know, I don't want to give this away or I don't want to give mm -hmm. that away. So we're going to try to lean away from those types of questions 
And mm -hmm. let's um, go into the how to research those who are in masonry. And then afterwards, we can go deeper into your book sure. and, and what Mr. Matthews, Captain Matthews did. So with that being said, you helped me. And according to LaMonica, you actually um, helped her as well. Hi, LaMonica. <laughs> well, I don't think she's on here. That was just the other thing, but she'll, she'll catch um, was, she left a message earlier. So I don't know if she's going to be, if she's going to make it. I hope she's up here. But LaMonica is actually my cousin. Okay. That's another one of my cousins. Mm -hmm. Now, um, you helped me with my great, I think he's what, I think he, because he's Brian's uncle too. He's like our third great grand uncle or second great grand mm -hmm. uncle, something like that. Right, and right. his name um, was Reverend W.M. Peterson. Mm -hmm. And on his particular headstone, there was the Mason symbol and, and mm -hmm. everything. So I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't know what to do about it because I had one person who actually told me, oh no, he couldn't have been a Mason because black people couldn't be Mason. <laughs> so, um, well, it, or they're saying not at that time, but I don't think they knew the history, or obviously, absolutely not. Yeah, they didn't know the history. So, remind me, was this uh, was that South Carolina you were talking? What which state was that? Yes, yeah. WM was in South Carolina. Yeah, I mean, they, so, they, we've been there since since Civil War. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, yeah, because he's. I don't know. I don't know. I still don't know, and I think that was something that you and I were going to get into mm -hmm. to find out when he joined and. But you did find some information on him to say that he actually was a Mason. So how does a person go about, you know, doing that that type of Masonry? You, you, you said the type of Masonry or the type of research? I mean, that type of research. And LaMonica is here. She said, hey. There you go. There you go. See, I told you she should catch it. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, honestly, I would say the biggest thing, obviously, people would look for is, well, where are the the records, right? Everybody says, where are the records? Um, and the, the biggest things that I would say um, really are twofold. One is you cannot overlook newspapers, okay? Um, yeah. Fraternal organizations, fraternal life is a lot more relevant to people of the 19th century and the you know first half of the 20th century than for a lot of us today, unfortunately. Um, a lot of newspapers, black newspapers particularly, carried fraternal columns where they talked about what lodges were meeting in that town, you know, and that was partially so that the community knew what type of activities were going on, as well as for members who either lived there or who maybe even were traveling to say, hey, well, I'm a Mason or you know, let's take it, we can, let, let, we don't just have to focus on, on Masonry, we can look at other fraternal organizations like the Elks, the Odd Fellows, Knights of Pythias, what have you. You know, if I'm a Knight of Pythias and I'm traveling through Mississippi, I look in the newspaper, oh, they, they have a lodge here. Maybe I can go visit or maybe I can find a place to stay if I'm in need or, you know, maybe I'm looking for a job. I'm a new, you know, I'm new to the area, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and so so you can't overlook those because you will find oftentimes, uh, you know, elections being mentioned, sometimes problems, which I, I personally kind of like finding the problems because where, where there's one problem, there's always a yeah. story, <laughs> you know, uh, some kind of controversy, what have you. Uh, you, you definitely cannot overlook those. Um, where I, where I'm blessed, uh, being a historian for for my Grand Lodge, is that I've been I have a lot of access to what, what are called proceedings. Um, fraternal organizations are supposed to, at least, uh, and usually do, produce annual conference proceedings, just like 
a lot of organizations that we're in today. Um, and so what I basically do or, uh, is I not only look at the history as far as the fraternity is concerned, but I also try to take time out personally to look at the membership uh, returns and find out, well, who were some of these people, particularly in areas that I'm interested in, um, in researching? Uh, and a lot of those type of things you're not going to really find. I mean, I found in all my years of, of genealogy research, I found one uh, Prince Hall, one black fraternal proceeding online. So this is not something that you can just easily jump on some of these sites and, and find. Um, yeah. uh, th thankfully, uh, something I think you and I were talking about this uh, yesterday, um, a lot of people don't realize that a lot of your lodges, or at least grand lodges in different states, have libraries. We have one in D.C., um, a lot of different states have one. Matter of fact, uh, as far as uh, Black Freemasonry goes, North Carolina has a very good library. I've never been there, but uh, to my understanding, they have a very good one. Um, Florida, Florida is actually getting. And matter of fact, I need to send this over to you, uh, Danya. For uh, Florida, they're having they're about to have an, a whole exhibit opened up in a museum down in Jacksonville on the history of Black Masonry in Florida. Um, so a lot of people, a lot of people I find don't realize that those type of resources exist, and so they don't utilize them. You know, um, the biggest uh, repository that I can recommend to people is the Iowa Masonic Library, which is in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Um, they have probably, I believe, the largest collection of um, not just black, but, you know, Masonic history and artifacts, period. But they also have a lot on African-Americans as well. Um, and so if you're looking at a particular state or you have some document or an artifact from a relative, I, I highly encourage people to. Uh, contact them um, and, and and say, hey, you know, I'm looking for a black Masonic lodge in this area. Can you help me? You know, um, if 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 going local doesn't help you first, you know. Uh, right. Yeah. Okay. Well, there's one question that I had. It's something that Donnie and I had talked about when we discovered W.M. Peterson had been mm -hmm. a Mason. Mm -hmm. We were also told that he couldn't have been a Mason because he had been enslaved. And mm -hmm. that if you were enslaved, you couldn't be a Mason. Mm -hmm. Right. Is that just hearsay or was there any was there any truth to that? He couldn't. Well, he wouldn't have been a he wouldn't have been a Mason while he was enslaved. Uh, that's something that, uh, you know, a lot of the white Masons at the time of that period tried to use against us and whatnot. And of course, we, we, we of course, I mean, put like this, slavery itself, as far as we were concerned, was an illegitimate institution to begin with. So someone's status of being enslaved or not, as far as we were concerned during that period, would have been null and void. You know, the fact is, if, if uh, the gentleman you're talking about, the brother at that time, uh, he joined, he, he, wasn't, he wasn't a slave as far as we were concerned, so. Right, okay. You know, you know, okay. I mean, I can name you. I can name you a bunch of runaways that become that became grandmasters. Matter of fact, one of them was. Uh, if you're anyone's familiar with Lewis Hayden of Boston, Massachusetts, he mm -hmm. was a runaway from Kentucky. He became grandmaster. Oh wow! It was still it was still uh -huh. a runaway. <laughs> you, you know, so I mean that. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well. Um. So let's let's get into Mr. Matthews, Mr. Okay. Captain William D. Matthews. Right on. What drew you to him, and what made you start writing his story? Oh man, I love telling this story. So uh, actually, one day I was on uh, this really scholarly uh, site called Facebook, <laughs> <laughs> and 
And uh, this woman named Denisha Swanigan, who I think, and I believe she's in the chat right now. I think I believe she is. She uh, is. She had tagged me on a on a post, and she had found a her and her sister. They found a letter um, from one of her uncles, whose name was John J. Bruce, to her other great uncle, um, Senator Blanche Kelso Bruce. Um, for those who don't know, Senator Bruce was the first full term African American. Uh, to serve in Congress. Yes, yeah, I, see, I see Denisha's comment here. She said, here we go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, here we go. Um, and so this letter really didn't have, the content didn't have any Masonic value, really. It was, a, I believe it was J.J. Um, J. Bruce was congratulating his brother on having gotten married. Um, and again, Senator Bruce was the first full-term African, uh, first African-American to serve a full-term in Congress, uh, following behind Hiram Revels, who was also a Mason himself. Um, and so uh, she wanted to find out about the letterhead. And the letterhead was very specific. It was the letterhead of what is today known as the Prince Hall Grand Lodge of Missouri, which it had a different name at that time. J.J. Uh, Bruce at that time was serving as, as the uh, Grand Treasurer. And we're talking about, I think, 1870, somewhere in there. I, I don't remember the exact date off the top of my head. Um, and so I kind of was trying to explain to her a little bit about who we were, what his position was, some of the historical context of uh, in which they would have been interacting as far as their Masonic uh, lives was concerned. Um, and then she passed on something else to me, which really was the seed for this book. She uh, passed on a newspaper article from the Cleveland Plain Dealer uh, dated in 1869. It was about late April, early May of 1869. And this article talked about another um, great great uncle of hers by the name of Henry C. Bruce. Okay, now Henry Bruce was serving as grand lecturer uh, in the state of Kansas. Okay, and what had happened was that he had been shot by a gentleman named Al named um, Alan Pinks. Okay, this newspaper article detailed that the Masons in Leavenworth, Kansas, led by Captain William D. Matthews found the guy and gunned him down in broad daylight <laughs> in front of the sheriff and everybody like, like, you know, like, like, like any kind of classic Hollywood, you know, Western <laughs> and, mm. and they rode off and, you know, and I was like, wait, what? <laughs> you know, I think um, I would have been that way too. <laughs> right. I mean, to, to give you some more context on my reaction, you have to remember at this time in my historical research, you know, I'm used to finding these great, abolitionists and stories of civil war soldiers and politicians and civil rights lawyers who were masons and i'm like wait they, they, they shot him down in the street <laughs> and wrote right. off I'm like wait what um i really didn't have much to go on at first but i knew who william d matthews was i knew about a civil war service and i also knew that there was this um excuse me i'm, I'm coughing on a little bit i'm sorry um I knew that there was a uh, a broader story with him as far as our organization is concerned because what happened was that in the early 1800s, okay, I, again, I got to go back to give you, to come forward, okay? So right. we're going to practice Sankofa for a second, all right? We're going to okay. back and come forward. Okay. So Prince Hall establishes African Lodge in Boston. Then the second African Lodge is established in Philadelphia under a guy named, anyone ever heard of Absalom Jones or Bishop Richard Allen? From the, nah. uh, 
Never heard of him. Fish Have tobacco. you grown? No, I haven't. Okay. <coughs> oh, excuse me. Absalom um, Jones and Richard Allen were founders of the Free African Society in Philadelphia. Uh, Richard Allen is the is the founder of the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Okay. Okay. Um, so early on, you see the link between Black Freemasonry and African Methodism. All right. Even though there's not an official link, there's a historical tie. Okay. Uh, looks like we lost Danya. I guess she'll. No, I'm here. Um. So anyway, what happens in Pennsylvania is that Absalom Jones becomes the first Grand Master uh, there in Pennsylvania. And after his death, there's a split in the organization to make it make it easy on you. This split between these, the, the Grand Lodge in Pennsylvania metastasizes up and down the eastern seaboard. And again, we're talking in the 1830s, 1840s. A gentleman by the name of John T. Hilton, who at that time was serving as the head of the Massachusetts Brothers, calls together a meeting of all the legitimate and illegitimate uh, children of African Lodge and says, look, we've got to solve this problem. All these this infighting has to stop. So what they do is they form what was called a National Grand Lodge on June 24th of 1847. Okay? So you have a National Grand Lodge that was supposed to govern the individual state Grand Lodges, which govern the individual lodges in the local towns or whatever, right? Okay. So they form this structure and even though white Americans had said they wanted one, they never had one. Um, <coughs> oh, excuse me. I'm so sorry. Pardon me. That's okay. So they formed this structure. And this, is, this was basically the rule of law for most black Masons from 1847 up through the 1870s. Okay. Mm-hmm. In the late 1870s, all hell broke loose. And there was a movement to dismantle the National Grand Lodge. Okay, um, so I, in in my lodge and where, where my membership is, we are descended from the group that left the National Grand Lodge. Okay, uh, Captain Matthews, however, was the leader of the group that wanted to keep this National Grand Lodge structure going. You follow me? Yeah. So in a lot of the literature that I read earlier in my Masonic career and whatnot, where he's mentioned, he's basically mentioned as a bad guy to make, you know, to make it simple. Right. And the fact that Denisha had this letter talking about how he went and avenged her uncle's shooting. Thankfully, her uncle survived the, the, the gunshots. Um, I said, wait a minute. No one ever told this story. I never heard this. I, I asked people who I thought would know more about it and knew more about him. And no one could really answer the questions I had, you know. And so over time, uh, what ended up happening was I wanted to expand and learn more about him, his lodge, his grand lodge. And what I realized I was uncovering was the true history of how Black Freemasonry got to the Old West. Uh, and it was a history that had been written out of our a lot of our published documents and, and books and whatnot, uh, because in part because of how they how William Matthews liked to govern at that time, okay. and also okay. because of his ardent support of this National Grand Lodge that we once had uh, in place. Okay. Well, I have to say, listening to you speak, it just reminds me how that early period in um, Reconstruction was such a vibrant and exciting period. I mean, right. we have 
political activism. We have people founding historical, what, what would become historical black universities, Freemasons, mm -hmm. you know, learning and just, and just striving. And it's, it frustrates me because so much of that has been wiped out of the history books. Right, exactly, ah. exactly. And, and, and the thing about it with this, with this particular story is that this is a black, this is all black, black folks, you know, sometimes yeah. when you talk reconstruction, you know, you're talking about, you know, the Dixiecrats coming back in power and stuff like that. Well, in this, this particular instance, you know, this was black men in the West. And, and the more I was researching, I said, oh my God, the uh, Captain Matthews organized, not only did he organize the first Kansas colored volunteers, which became the 79th, they're the first regiment to see um, combat during the civil war. Okay. Uh, he made a run for the Kansas State Legislature. Uh, he lost that run, but he, he did try. Uh, he organizes the Masons out, out west. Pre he actually organized the first couple lodges there pre-Civil War, okay? And then he f forms what was called the King Solomon Grand Lodge of Kansas uh, in 1867, okay? And he basically expands his power base from Kansas into Colorado, up into Wyoming, Arkansas, Oklahoma Territory, Indian Territory, Texas, you know, uh, um, all the lodges that formed the Prince Hall Grand Lodge of Texas came from uh, William Matthews, you know, so this guy was no joke, you know, uh, and, and he, uh, I mean, I think he was born to play the role of being like, you know, the Grand Master of the West for, for black men, because, uh, I mean, the, the very thought that he was like, that he was, that they were shooting, <laughs> you know, we shot back, you know. That was a very powerful statement for me. So I wanted to basically, the more information that we found, uh, Denise and I kept in touch all these years. Um, and, and we, you know, she was there with me every step of the way. And uh, the more information we found, it was just like we kept bumping into these iconic figures of African-American history that, but people don't look at them in this particular light or see these relationships. So, yeah. so that's where the book came from. Well, I have to say my own... I tip my hat off to um to Mr. Matthews because not not that there was any part of the country that was kind to black folk at, at that time period. Right. The West was like off the chain. Absolutely. And yeah. Hostile. Yeah. And it's just so amazing Absolutely. to me because Absolutely. Typically, and, and, typically and that's just... the thing. I think you know we have to look and realize that we have we we didn't have um, elected officials you know up until Reconstruction, right? And so we still had some of those same issues that any other group of people are going to have, particularly for free blacks. You know, when there's conflict in the community, who do you go to when, you know, there's a shooting or there's someone's beating their wife or something, you know, a lot of times it's these, these fraternal organizations. Uh, I don't want to compare them to the mafia, but you get that type of, you know, we take care of our own type of mentality. Uh, right. And so being a part of a lodge at that time was something that was, to be coveted and also something to be respected. Um, you know, the idea that these men were organized enough to say, all right, we're going to get this guy. And not only did they get him, they got arrested for it, went to trial and got off. <laughs> we know somebody you know, I mean, like is, that. You know, I, I couldn't make this stuff up. So, you know, in finding the history, I said, wow, I really wanted to give this story back to not only the fraternity, but really to the, to the general public as well. Cause I just thought it was a really great story. And then to expand it more, to find out about his version of events, because as far as this whole split between our national grand lodge and the independent grand lodges was concerned, this is something that if, as far as black masons are concerned, this is something that is still like a really deep, deep wound today. 
Uh, I just got yelled at last week at a conference uh, by somebody who, because they were they asked me how dare I write the story of William Matthews? He was a this and that and this and that. <laughs> you know, this was 2019. This was like a week ago, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that shows us that historical memory uh, in organizations and families uh, they can still be very relevant, even though even though things happened over a hundred something years ago. You know. So, um, well, let me ask you this question because I wanted to go two part. There's actually a couple Hello? of questions. Can you hear me? Can I you can hear me? You. Okay, yeah, yeah. So, so, so okay. yeah. So that that was uh, so so yeah. So that that's that was basically the uh, you know, the crux of the book in and of itself. And then, like I said, you know, we dive into Captain Matthew's life uh quite a bit. Uh, we go into um understanding how he spread the lodges and whatnot. And what I tried to do because this book really started out as a genealogical you know, inquiry, uh, I tried to make sure that we included as much information as possible to, so that people can use it, not only use it to read the story, but to use it as a research tool. Uh, we documented what lodges that he established and where they were um, as much as I could. I tried to write about not only him, but others, important uh, brothers of that time period um, as well who, who contributed to the story. Uh, I think one of the one of the greatest finds I think that we found was uh, a gentleman by the name of Reverend William R. Carson. Now, Reverend Carson uh, was formerly a deputy under William Matthews. Dep- when I say deputy, I mean a deputy grandmaster. And um, Reverend Carson, uh, not only was he uh, possibly the first black Mason in Texas, uh, he was mm. uh, w- was present at the surrender at Lee's surrender at Appomattox Courthouse. Uh, I, we found documentation where Reverend Carson claimed to be Robert E. Lee's son. Oh. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Hey. And, and I got a picture of him too. James? It's in the book. James, um, can you hear if me? Look at the picture, you go, wait a minute. <laughs> James, can you hear me? He might have been telling the truth here, you know? Yeah. Uh, so again, this, this is another aspect of from from a from, for those of us who are who are into genealogy that I think is something that needs to be looked at as well when we look at some of these fraternal organizations is finding these family connections not only within black America, but we also find them uh, across the color line as well, which which was which is really awesome to see. She's James, back. can you hear me? Yes, ma'am. I was okay. I was always here. You just couldn't hear me. I don't know why. Um, so I have two questions. One is from um, well, actually, both questions are from Tiffany. But before I post her question up, one of the things that I was gonna say, as far as you know, when we were talking about people who are um, our ancestors who were a part of the, you know, the reconstruction period and how vibrant um, Brian said that it was during that time and, and everything. And you made the comment, you actually made this statement, you know, we take care of our own, not right. sounding like right. a mafia. But do you not think that that's what actually happened with black people back then? You know, did they actually start taking care of each other? Because I, I actually believe that that's what was going on because I don't think they it really would have been possible for them to make the kind of strides that they made within that short period of time in the Reconstruction era that it scared the, 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 those who were against us right. and started the Black Codes and started the Jim Crow and start, you know, do you think that that's what they were doing from the beginning? Oh, oh absolutely. absolutely. That's why I love talking about Reconstruction um, because you can see very clearly that, yeah, we had been knocked on our behinds uh, by slavery in many regards, but 
the moment them chains got off, brothers and sisters went to work, you know. Huh. Um, and, and so, so you can see that. That's why I love, like, I love doing these type of talks, um, especially about this subject because I, I love the look on people's faces when pe- when people ask me about like when did the Masons start, and I tell them like, yeah, well, we've had lodges and we had lodges in Louisiana since pre Civil War. Wow. People, people so go, let me. <laughs> So let me say, um, let me post Tiffany's question. Okay. Tiffany said, first question she had was, what part of the West is this? Okay. The book primarily focuses on Kansas, uh, but then expands out uh, because Kansas was the base for uh, Captain Matthews Grand Lodge, which was called the King Solomon Grand Lodge of Kansas. But don't let the name fool you because during this period, uh, particularly the Reconstruction era, uh, he had jurisdiction over... Um, Wyoming, Colorado, Nebraska, Arkansas, Oklahoma Territory, Indian Territory, and Texas, and possibly wow. a couple other places that I didn't find. Um, so yeah. Okay. Okay. And then her next question was, what are your thoughts on a black man joining a white lodge? Is that beneficial? Um, hmm. I, I would say this, uh, our organization, uh, is founded on principles of universal brotherhood and a belief in the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. And so, uh, if a, I don't really, it doesn't bother me where a, a man, I don't care what color he is, what lodge he joins, as long as it's a legitimate one. And I'll just kind of leave it at that. <laughs> okay. As long as he's a All good right. man, as long as he's a worthy man and he joins a, 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 a true lodge, that doesn't, doesn't bother me at all. Okay. Deborah, well, we'll get to that, Deborah. We're definitely going to, she asked about where we could get the book and things, but we're going to definitely get to that. So what other things can you, um, well, Brian, wait, I'm sorry. Did you have a question? No, no, I just responding to Deborah. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, so what other, what other things about him did you find? Because according to Denisha, she said that, it was really great at the fact that you guys, you know, was able to find him in the newspapers because it was so much, so many stories that were there, you know, right. that, that went untold until your book. So is there any other story that you kind of covered in the book that, you know, should be said or should be talked about? Oh, man, this guy, was, let me say something. You guys would not believe the antics and things this guy got into. Um, yes, I mean, <laughs> no, no, I mean, I mean, like, li- like, literally, like, everybody who's read the book has been like, man, you, there's got to be a movie, a Netflix series, or something on this guy because he, 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 just so much stuff that he was involved in. I mean, between, uh, man, between having a shootout uh, over his wife, to running for for Congress, <laughs> to getting arrested for uh, for not paying for dry cleaning. <laughs> So, I mean, wow. I mean, just, I mean, this guy was just, he was just all over the place. And then, you know, he was a very, very militant, active race man as well. Matter of fact, uh, uh, in his run for the, for the state legislature, um, he, he, he did run as a Republican, but he refused to take money from white philanthropists. He didn't want any money from whites for his wow. campaigning or anything. Uh, because he said in so many words that uh, if he, um, he, he believed that politicians were loyal to those who paid them. And so if black people paid him, black people would know that he would be loyal to them. Oh, maybe yeah. we need to adopt that now. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so he, he, he's really, he really was a race man. He really was ahead of his time in, 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 in some regards. Um, you know, yeah. uh, like, 
you know, I mean, and, and again, one of the things that kind of struck me was how mobile he was, um, you know, but again, this is the era of the transcontinental railroad and whatnot. Um, you know, there was one time he got, he actually got robbed on, he actually, he, he had set up the uh, Prince Hall Grand Lodge of Texas, got their officers installed on his way home. He was robbed and he told the guys who robbed him that he, that, that was his favorite purse and that he would, he wanted it back. And, they, you know, they beat him up or whatever. A couple weeks later, he published in the newspaper that he got his purse back. Uh oh. How he did that, I don't know. But he got his purse back. That's what he said he did, and so we're just gonna kind of go with it. I mean, you know, I don't know. So, but I'm gonna say this. Mm-hmm. He sounds and Brian, you can you can come with me on this one. I think you're gonna agree. He sounds like John. Oh no, he does. He definitely does. And and it's making me think that the men in that time Mm -hmm. who were educated, who did know certain things, who were able to really speak out and stand up were all like that Mm -hmm. because he's he's very similar to to my um, my grandfather's second cousin. He's very similar. I mean, when I tell you, John Yeldale had no problem mincing his words. He did not mince words at all. He had no issue. They were they were contemporaries. They were alive at the same time. Yeah, and in their way, and in their way, they were both fighting the same kind of fight. Mm-hmm. Well, well, you know, I, I had a professor back in college who, who once made a statement that uh, back in those days they made black men out of steel and iron. Yes, sir. Know? And 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 so I think that you know just the times they lived in. I mean, William Matthews. Uh, now, mind you, he's a few years younger than, but he was raised in the same community basically as Frederick Douglass. You know, and actually, and I talk about him, his his uh, friendship and his relationship with Frederick Douglass in, in the book there. Um, you know, the difference is Matthew is a couple years younger and he's born free. Now, sometimes being born free can be a little scary to be more than slaves in the mm-hmm. aspect of you got something to lose now. If you're born enslaved, you're already enslaved, you know. Um, but if you're born free, you've got something to be fearful of losing in, in that in that regard. You know what I mean? So. Yeah. I think that the things he saw, uh, his travels, um, you know, he was very educated, uh, not necessarily formally. He didn't go to school at all, but you can read his writings and whatnot. You can see this guy was very educated. He had fought fought in war. And, and I mean, when they fought, I believe it was the Battle of Poison Springs, if I recall correctly, his unit, they lost 700 men and won. So if, mm. you, lost, if you lost 700 men and still won the fight, how many did you take out, <laughs> you know? Uh, right. that, that's going to make you a hard, that's going to make you a different type of person. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. So um, I have some comments up here. One was okay. given by Denicia. She said in her, let me pull it up. She says, in my opinion, the men who were Freemasons during Reconstruction were responsible for bringing structure to our people and taught our ancestors how to function post-slavery. Now, mm-hmm. if that's the case, mm-hmm. what 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 do you think is going on now? Because we don't function like they did back then. And you have so many people that come back and say, you know, oh, you know, people can try this, but I'm not my I'm not my ancestor. In other words, they don't know. It gives you straight proof that they have no idea that they really may want to be their ancestor because their ancestors became and did some things that allowed them to be able to say, I'm not my ancestor. 
Right. When, right. when people say stuff like that, it just shows me that they, they're just talking about what they don't know and haven't read. Um, you know, everybody wasn't... I mean, you can't name... Name me the year when black people were not fighting for liberty, freedom, justice, and equality. I'll wait. <laughs> I, I know that's right. And, and, and not just black people in the United States, in Africa, the Caribbean, South America, Period. Europe, wherever. Exactly. Right? Exactly. So, 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 so you can't... When people say that, it's just, again, people fight for black studies and then they don't go to class. Okay, so but if we go to for those of us who go to class, what we know is we'll look and we'll find people like a Captain Matthews. You'll find people like uh, Martin Delaney or Richard Gleaves or some of these other individuals. A lot of them. And this is the thing that I think is really important, particularly about about the Masonic history of African-America, is that these people were networked. They were connected. They were coordinating things, yeah. even pre-Civil War, in ways that people still aren't really dealing with in an academic environment not not to my satisfaction anyway um and so to, to be able to tell these type, these type of stories i mean most of the a good percentage of your reconstruction era politicians i mean the vast majority they're, they're, they're prince hall masons and they're like and they're not just masons but they're like leaders of the organization and so what does that tell you about the understanding of electoral politics in black america during that period and not just during that period but even down to, at least through the first half of the 20th century as well, it, it shows you how we understand community, how we understand uh, community economics, you know, in, in business relationships and whatnot, family relationships as well. Um, you know, you can, and you can, you don't have to guess or hypothesize about it. You can read what they said and read what they wrote. You know, right. um, it, it's something that I wish more of us were, were engaging in the documentation as, 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 as I know you guys do here on Genealogy Adventures and whatnot. Um, you know, we, we, we got to do more of it. You know, Denisha, she mentioned something uh, all the time whenever Matthews comes up is that when we started doing the research, not only was he connected to her uncle Henry, but he was also connected to one of her other uh, uh ancestors who was also a civil war soldier you know they went on a mission together matthews was over here with, with her cousin he was over here you know so we're seeing some of these very important men in in history they weren't just these like like today we have what they call um what is what's, what's the phrase they say uh public intellectuals that you never meet <laughs> right <laughs> you know you, you never you know somebody i'm not going to name names but some of these pastors i see on tv behind certain politicians i go who's that i never heard of them before you know, back in those days, uh, yeah, I'm talking about the orange person. Yeah, I'm talking about him. Um, uh, some of these people um, of of the of that time period, however, you knew who they were because they were. Oh yeah, that person he's district deputy grandmaster, or she's the you know she's she was worthy matron of the local chapter, or they're the most exalted ruler of the Elks, or you know these are this is how people organize. And so when someone steps out there and says, hey. I now want to run for state or local office or federal office, or whatever. There's a different relationship than just getting a flyer under your door, <laughs> you know, or, or it's a different relationship at the time. And that's what these brothers were doing back then. Well, I'll wow. share something that really, really frustrates me. And I'm going to sound like my dad. Okay. He's no longer with us, but I'm, I'm channeling my father. The thing that really frustrates me is you have this wonderful thing called Google Books. Right. And specifically for the older books that are out of copyright, you can, you can download the whole book for free mm -hmm. and, read it, and read about this stuff. You can, you can pretty much read about anything that you want to read about. So it's not even like the information's not out there. It's just people aren't reading it. Right. 
exactly. And and that's and that's really the problem I think to, uh, today. And that's why I, I don't like trying to reinvent wheels. Wheels have been around for a long time. We can study yes, the wheel. We we can you know we can use it. But to try to reinvent it over and over again, I, I think is ridiculous. You know, um, I, mm-hmm. I'm much more into let's build on what's already been there. So instead of saying I'm not my ancestor, I'm not my ancestors. No, I am my ancestors. Matter of fact, I'm going to be an even better version of them because they yes. fought oh. so that I could have some liberties to do some things they couldn't. You know, that's um, so awesome. And, and that, and to me, that's one of the. I think that's one of the um, beauties of the work that I do in researching Black institutions is you can see generation after generation of how the how they've had to deal with problems and you know and move past them and then maybe have to deal with it again but hey now we've got some more tools that we can work past you, you see what i'm saying um yeah. and so so that's why i think institution building you know as a as a whole is so important you know everybody today it's easy to just get your credit card out jump on some of these websites and sign up for a genealogy account or an ancestry or whoever and that's fine i I have one too that's fine i i'm happy to bum off your account if you give me your password um and so but there's also something still about being a part of a local genealogy society whether it be ogs or whoever right um i think there's still something to that because you get a human interaction that's that's different um than just sitting on a computer all day i think computers are great i love my ipad but being isolated from other human beings is not, to me, that's not the goal. <laughs> right. <laughs> True. So, and it's funny that you even mentioned, you know, other organizations, genealogical organizations like Oz, because I actually had a, we had a meeting yesterday and um, we had a presentation from a woman by the name of Anita Lynn Lee. Mm-hmm. And she gave this awesome presentation about her story. She also has a book, um, her thread front, something what is it? Her threads, her thread, the threads that run through her history, mm-hmm. her story. That's what it is. And um, the thing that got me about her is how she talked, how she discussed and and talked about the families in the early 1900s in the D.C. area, like before my family even got here. My family got here in 28. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. but she was talking earlier than that. And she was given all of this information about how they how they did things and how they took care of each other. And I guess coming to D.C. It was considered coming north and how there was this one. There was um, a few white families that lived on the same block as some of her ancestors and how they would protect them as well. So it was always going on. A protection was always happening and and they were always fighting to just constantly move forward but we started getting to the into the conversation of educating our children and why these certain things are going on right what what are your my I, you know people might be against me on what i'm getting ready to say but there were two incidents here in the dc area that i'm sure you heard about one in loudon county mm-hmm. about the teacher and uh, teaching a slave game and then another one somebody handing out cotton to all of the kids or what have you. Yeah. So do you think those things were purposely done? Um, Or or do you think, let me, let me finish it. Do you think they were purposely done or do you think that they hear us and they want to tell our stories? 
Mm-hmm. And so they try to do it the best way they can. But the bottom line is they can't tell our stories. We have mm-hmm. to do it. We have to be included. So what do you, what do you think? Because that's my thought process. Um, I, I'm not in the business of trying to make sense out of crazy. But <laughs> if, if, if I'm going to respond to the question, I guess I would say that I think that um, the, I don't think that some of these people, when things like that occur, are that they're intentionally offensive, but the programming is so deep in our society <laughs> that people automatically do things, automatically say things because that's the programming, right? So you have to, I can't be responsible for trying to reprogram somebody else and what their program is going to be about. Only thing I can worry about is what's going on in my house and, and what, you know, I don't have children, but if I did, making sure they know what, you know, what's acceptable and what's not. Um, and, and understanding what self-respect is for themselves as well as for their ancestors that came, you know, before them. Um, you know, I mean, that slavery game thing is, is something that, I mean, why would you do that? Like common sense. What, what, just as a professional, why would you do that? Um, you know, but everybody, you know, again, that programming is just so, is just so ingrained in some folks. And then there's a, I think because there's a lack of, uh, of real cultural understanding in America, um, you know, yeah, we live, yeah, segregation is no longer legal, you know, as far as our public institutions are concerned, but I think, I think as a society, we don't allow for enough crossover of understanding. So when you hear NWA saying after police, if, if you happen to have a father who's a police officer and you live in this, you know, upper class suburb, whatever, you, you might not be able to relate. Not, I don't care how, how great the beat is, you might not be able to relate to that. But if you grow up in an area where the police are seen as a predatory force or where you've had to uh, have sit downs with your parents, you know, I've never been to jail, but I I had I had my, my parents had to sit me down and talk to me about, well, James, you know, the police is th- there's a different relationship there. So uh, I think that if there was more understanding of these type of things, which, of course, we all know is rooted in America's original sin, then, you know, maybe we would see some changes. But, you know, some 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 things that are good for one segment of the population have proven to be bad for another segment of the population. So somehow, somehow those things have to even out how that happens. I don't know. So I have a genealogical question for you. Okay. So I've been doing my, you know, say for instance, I've been doing some workup and some research on ancestors or cousins. And I find out that a few of them were Freemasons. Mm -hmm. So what would you advise to be the next, I mean, how accessible are the records? What are the steps that I would have to go through to, to gain access to see them? Well, it, well, it would depend on, to, to some extent, my answer would depend on the state that you're talking about. Because um, some, like I admit, some states are better than others. Um, the Iowa Masonic Library is, is, uh, is definitely a go-to place you know, that I would recommend you know, reaching out to. Um, and, and finding out what proceedings are available for that particular state. Uh, prayerfully, they're available for you know the time period what you're looking for. I'm not sure. Is there is there a state that you have in mind, or, or are you just asking generally? Speaking? Oh, just just in general. Just generally, yeah. So so yeah. So that that would that would be uh, one of the main things I would do. I would also try to find you know if you have an artifact, a document, or something that can help narrow down. Because I mean, there are thousands of lodges in existence today, and probably way more that have gone in you know, that, that, that have died out over the years. So if you can find out, well, which lodge is it, or at least get an understanding of, well, if he was a member, let's say, of here in D.C., if he was in the Prince Hall Grand Lodge of D.C., chances are that I can find something on him. 
uh, or at least can help you find a lodge. But again, we're a smaller place. Place where you know it's just DC isn't but so big. Uh, when you go to places like Alabama, Texas, Mississippi, I mean they've had thousands of lodges over the past 150 years or so. Uh, so again, not to say that you can't find the record because I'm because sh- it's very possible you can. But again, there's going to be more documentation to kind of sift through and reaching out to those individual grand lodges as well, uh, you know, and finding out, you know, hey, who is the grand historian for this state? And again, not just for the Masons, but if you find somebody who's a member of the Elks or the Odd Fellows or the Good Samaritans, you know, try to find out, reach out to some of these organizations because you'd be surprised at what some of these lodges and, and grand lodges still have in their possession. You really would be shocked. Um, well, actually, sure. you, raise, you raise a really interesting point. So, for instance, say I have an ancestor who was a member of um, a branch that is closed. What, in general, would happen to, to all of those records? Would they be passed on to another, to another, another uh, chapter? Um, well, what's supposed to happen is it's supposed to go to the, to the Grand Lodge of that state. Now, what they do with them, if they keep them, or, you know, again, that's state by state. Um, you know, if, if you have somebody who is, again... If you reach out to the state's historian, uh, that would be the best answer I could give for for uh, for a lodge that's no longer functional. But again, the proceedings of a grand lodge really tell its story. So if you go year after year, if you or if you have an idea of when that lodge died out, or maybe you don't, you can still go back in the proceedings and say, well, what was the lodge in this community? What was the name? Where what was the, you know where was it? And um, and you can try kind of track it from there. Uh, you know, again, it's, it's just reaching out to, to some of those libraries and, and saying, hey, what do you have? And again, local historical societies also oftentimes have some really amazing things um, in their collections as well. Um, and again, those local newspapers, I mean, you, you if, if a new lodge pops up or even if one dies out, you'll, you, you, you probably will find it in those newspapers. Um, what I find is a lot of people don't look at the fraternal columns of newspapers because they don't know what it's talking about. But sometimes you just pace, just right. sit there and read it. Even if you don't know, understand it all, just sit there and read it to get a to try to get an understanding. Right. So that brings talking about the 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 lodges and everything. That actually brings me to my next question. You sent me a link for um, the Prince Hall think tank. Yes. And you wanted me to share that, so mm-hmm. I am sharing it right now. Mm-hmm. Why don't you tell us something about that? Oh sure, yeah. Oh, Prince sure. Hall think tank is a show that I co-host and uh, and co-founded um, with. Uh, Dave Gillarm, uh, who's the grand historian of Georgia, uh, Dr. Ken Collins, who's the grand historian of Alabama, which is actually where my mother's family is from, um, and Antonio Caffey, who is the grand historian of Ohio. And uh, we basically uh, saw some other similar type of programming out there, but nothing that was really focusing on the African-American um, Masonic you know, story. And so what we decided to do was we put out you know, episodes uh, once a month, uh, last Sunday of every month, we talk about different topics. Um, because you've got four grand historians who started it, uh, we have Brother Curtis Black from Texas and Preston Collins uh, from Ohio also uh, on as well. Uh, so you, you're going to have a lot of episodes there on history. Some of the episodes, uh, or you know, a good portion of them are ones that are kind of more geared for, towards our membership. Um, nothing really secretive, but just things that are like about lodge uh, business stuff and how to get members, that type of thing. But mm-hmm. um, a lot of our episodes really deal with the history of the organization. So that's why I wanted to make sure that I, was, that I shared it. Uh, we, we've done episodes talking about not only the early history of Black Freemasonry, but we really try to dive into different topics such as uh, the history of uh, Black Freemasonry and the Underground Railroad, which if you don't understand Black Freemasonry, 
I don't understand how you're going to fully understand the Underground Railroad. Um, we've talked about the history of black masonry in, in the A&E in church. Uh, we, we've looked at states like Florida, uh, Ohio, Pennsylvania. You know, we, we've tried to delve into different states and talk about not only their records, but what makes their store, their individual state grand lodges, you know, unique and who were some of the interesting people that were involved with them um, as well. So, you know, I wanted to share that as well, because uh, a lot of times folks will say, well, hey, this is all great, but they want to try to get something that's is applicable to them. So, right. so yeah. And we, we haven't covered every single state yet, but we're, we're working on it. Okay. Actually, that kind of makes sense because from what I'm gathering from what you're saying is that the Masons were part of that. It was a pillar in the community, just like the, just like religious centers and education centers. So it would make, it would make sense that they would all work together. Absolutely. Absolutely. Matter of fact, there's a, um, a quote from the, may, may I, may I read from my book? All right. Uh, this is actually a quote from Joseph Walks, who was the founder of um, of our Philaxis Research Society, which is an organization I'm also a part of as well. And uh, it kind of goes right to your point, Brian. He said that um, uh, he actually wrote this in the history of uh, Prince Hall Masons in Louisiana. Uh, he said the history of Prince Hall Freemasonry is in reality the history of the black experience in America. In fact, if one wanted to explore Black history, one could do so equally as well by, by perusing the proceedings of the various Prince Hall Grand and individual lodges. While the Black church, Black educational institutions, the Black press, and in, latter and in later years, Black civil rights organizations have been publicly perceived as the hegemony of Black America, this perception may, be, may have been misleading, for none of these Black institutions could match the quiet, determined, persistent role of leadership that came from the Masonic lodges of Prince Hall Freemasonry. And often hidden from view and unknown to the public is the fact that the leaders of many of these institutions were, for the most part, led by or sustained by Prince Hall Freemasons. Wow. That's interesting. Powerful. Yeah. That's powerful very thing. powerful. That's what I was getting ready to say. It's powerful. <laughs> yeah. um, so we had a, a few questions down here. Some of them we can answer. I want to go down to Tiffany. Tiffany asked, what was his um, ancestry? Only reason why I didn't put your question up, Tiffany, is because we've actually already answered it. And yes, they're out of Merlin. Tiffany and Brian are related um, on one way and mm -hmm. Tiffany and I are related on another. Brian has already pointed out that the, the um, Matthews started out in Merlin and this particular Matthew, if I'm not mistaken, you said he was from Merlin? Yes, he was. Yeah. <laughs> he, um, he traced his lineage back to, and I, don't, I know his father's name was Joseph Matthews. Um, I didn't know, I don't know anything beyond that on his father's side. Um, I know his mother's name was, I believe was, was um, Henrietta Wyatt. And um, she was uh, the daughter of a, a Frenchman by the name of Noah Wyatt uh, and an enslaved woman. Um, and, that's, and, that, and that's something that Captain Matthews said himself about his family background. Um, I, in doing the research, uh, I did find that Brother Walks, who I just quoted, uh, he had done some previous work uh, researching Captain Matthews' life. And uh, there was a, um, uh, a magazine issue of our Philaxis Research Journal that had Captain Matthews' photo on it back in the 80s, right? So this went out you know, across the country. And one of the brothers who was alive at the time named Alvin uh, Harkless Swiggett, uh, he was a very high-ranking Mason at that time, and uh, he happened to be Captain Matthew's great-grandnephew. 
And he wow. goes, you know, what the heck is my uncle's picture do- doing on this magazine? And so, <laughs> and so that, that prompted a follow-up to the initial article that kind of delved into the family genealogy a bit. Um, matter of fact, as a, as a side note, uh, Captain Matthews' brother-in-law was actually William H. Carney, the um, uh, Medal of Honor winner. Wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, so, then we had some other ones, um, some other questions up here. I think I started something when I asked that question about, you know, the teachers and all of that. And, mm-hmm. and that took us off track just a little bit. And I want to apologize. But Michelle... I think Brian and I may have a discussion about actually having a, a show, a special show about that. So we want to hold on to your question or your response for that, as opposed to this, because it takes it completely off topic. But I hear you. Um, just so people can see what she said. Oh, I just lost it. I just lost it. So, um, but there are some other questions and I don't want Michelle to think we weren't listening to her. I, I definitely hear you. Um, Nick Daniels asked, were, were these records digitized? And you actually already um, answered that one that, no, they're really not. You found maybe one. This was somebody that came on late. And then there was another question by Deborah Singleton, well, who actually well, said, I, are I, the digital stars? Okay, go ahead. Well, yeah, before we move on to that question, I want to touch on that one more time. Um, you have to remember, and this is one of the things that I would highly encourage just in general, for, for family history researchers to, to, to keep in mind, when you're, when you're looking at organizational records, right? Um, they're not, they're not, they weren't written for genealogical or research purposes, right? right. So don't be surprised or discouraged when, when I say that, no, it's not digitized because the, people go, well, why not? You know, well, it's, they're not for family research. They really were for, organi- for the organization and people have to remember these organizations aren't um, exhibits somewhere. These are living, breathing institutions that still exist. So, you know, sometimes it does pay to just have good manners and just knock on the door and say, hi, my name is such and such. And I'm just hoping that, you know, you, you guys have a historian or a library somewhere or, you know, I'm just looking for something. Can, can you help me, please? You know, it doesn't hurt to say please and thank you and whatnot. Um, because I, and the reason why I, bring, why I mention that is because I have people Sometimes people will tell me, well, well, yeah, I went to the local lodge in my area or I was researching my grandparents and I went and asked them to give me the records on this and they closed the door in my face. And I'm like, yeah, because you were rude, <laughs> you know, or, or you just or maybe you didn't understand that. Well, yeah, you're talking to the, the cleanup person, <laughs> you know, so so sometimes it just pays to just have a little patience and just use good manners. Uh, but and to remember that your family history journey isn't what these records were necessarily meant for. However, they can be utilized to help you in that journey. So, yeah. Well, I think that's the same for things like the um, certain database, like certain directories that we find. Some of these things, they weren't specific, they weren't written for genealogy, but they help. So I definitely understand where you get where you come from with that and that's probably why Nick is asking that particular question you got a lot of things that weren't specifically written for gene wasn't done for genealogy but now that they're out there they're digitizing them because there is so much information in them you know you got all these different directories I know um at the daughters of the American Revolution we we use we utilize those uh 
I can't think of the name of those books. They're they're records of town hall meetings right. that were going right. on, and they 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 utilize those town hall meeting records something severe. Um, so I can't, and those town hall meeting records weren't set up to do genealogical right. research, right. but they have a massive amount of information. Right. So right. I, I can definitely understand what you're saying and knocking on the door, like you said, is not a problem. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Good manner sometimes. I mean, again, when you have organizations that aren't in existence anymore and the records are just somewhere in the library, that's one thing. When, you, when you're talking about uh, an institution that's still functioning and you want to utilize some of their materials or whatever, you know, um, sometimes it just pays to just say, hi, you know, who's the person, who's that one person around here who knows everything? Right. <laughs> you know, right. say it nicely, you know. Uh, right. uh, you'd be surprised, you know, you get more, you, you always get more flies with honey than you will with vinegar. Well, right. I, have, I have to agree because I, even I have an example of this where one of my two times great uncles in Virginia was one of the early teachers at the Hampton Institute. I'm so sorry um, to hear that. I'm a Howard graduate. <laughs> those HU guys, those HU guys. <laughs> I, I, I mean no, I mean no offense whatsoever. Yes, sir. But I sent them an email, and you know, I was being as polite as I could. I was like, I've just recently understand. You know, this is his name. This is when he was there. Mm -hmm. can, you know, if it's at all possible, can you give me any more information? Well, the woman that received the email was so touched. Off of her own back, she went into the archives and found uh, found a photograph. It was like a star photograph wow. from like the first wow. year of his existence, and he was in it. Wow, he was in it. Is wow. he there? Is he there? And, and 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 I think Denisha is also a good example of this because when she uh, first contacted me, she'll tell you if she, she was on here. She said that she didn't even approach me about anything for a little while because she kind of like watched me on Facebook and different things I would say or whatever, and then she finally asked me, and again, she gave me, you, you have to think about it, right? We're still an organization. People get very, um, they get very spooky. Not, not touchy, they get very spooky. <laughs> and, and, and downright, some, some people are just downright, cons I'm concerned about some people because they hear the word the Masons and they just go, oh my God, you guys have the nuclear codes and you have this and you have that. <laughs> and it's like, well, you know, I, I got to pay my cable bill. Like, well, I don't even have cable. I have, I, I, I sling now. <laughs> <laughs> right, a, a uh, you know, like, like people, like people don't understand that. Like, no, it, treat it like you would any other institution. You know, you wouldn't go to, you wouldn't knock on a church door and just start blabbering off and talking. No, there's a certain way you do things, and so uh, I think just having good, com good, you know, common sense and good old fashioned courtesy, uh, and just and being, you know, and being direct and say, hey, this is what I have. Can you help me? You know, can what do you have? You know that right. that that really can help, but and, and not saying that the questioner the, the, the question wasn't wrong, but sometimes I have people will say, "Well, oh, they're not it's, it's not digital. Oh, well, it must not be important." Well, that's not true. That's not true. That's yeah. not true. Yeah. Yeah. So okay, then the, the other question was, are the Eastern Stars a part of the Freemasons? Um, yes and no. <laughs> uh, the, East, the Order of the Eastern Star is a uh, is a female auxiliary. Uh, organization uh, that's that's connected to Freemasonry, um, uh, so yes and no, um, but they but they they definitely play a very intricate and intimate role uh, in our history. Um, I really wish that there was more uh, scholarship out there on sisters in in the Eastern Stars um, because I know that that story is one that needs to be told. 
Um, thankfully, I know a sister here in D.C. who is currently working on that. Um, and I wish that I wish I had ten more just like her. Uh, well, no, I got I got about two or three like her, but I wish I had ten more um, wow. because the story of black women in fraternal organizations is something that uh, I think is very important and needs to be told. And I think and I've, I tell people all the time that uh, I don't think I'm the person to do that because I think that's a you know a woman's job to tell women's stories. But I'm he- but I'm here to I'm here to support in whatever way I can in telling those stories. Um, matter of fact, uh, one of the oldest Eastern Star chapters um, among Black women actually is here in D.C. Uh, Queen Esther chapter number one. Um, so you know, hopefully more of those stories will get told, uh, not just about Eastern Stars, but about other uh, female-led organizations like the Sisters of the Mysterious Ten. You know, uh, like um, uh, uh, Maggie L. Walker with the Order of St. Luke down in Virginia, you know, which, by the way, uh, for those who don't know, uh, the Order of St. Luke with Ma- under Maggie L. Walker's leadership, they, they had a bank, uh, the, the St. Luke Emporium, you know, they had their own newspaper. Again, and this was one of the most vibrant black organizations of the latter half of the 19th century in the first uh, couple decades of the 20th century, Right who's doing that research and who's utilizing those records? I mean, I know that the, the Library of Virginia has the, um, the Saint, I think it was the St. Luke Herald was the name of the newspaper. I, I don't know anybody who's really doing anything with that information, but I know for those of us who are into family history, if you if you got to have some, some kind of link to Virginia some kind of way. <laughs> right. You know, so, so who, who's doing that research? Who's utilizing that? You know, right. uh, we've got work to do. Well, if I can ask a favor, mm-hmm. the, the colleague of yours who's researching the Eastern Stars in D.C., right. mm-hmm. you can pass her contact information on to Donia. We'd love to have her on. In, in love to. Sure. Love to. Yeah. Um, there was another question where uh, Denicia asked, what, what did she say? She said, approximately when did the Order of Eastern Star chapter begin? <laughs> that, is a, that is a good question. Uh, Queen Esther chapter started in 1874. Um, there were a couple chapters that existed before that. Um, the oldest one uh, being chapter number one in North Carolina, and we don't exactly know when it started. And uh, wow. I'm going to leave it at that so I can keep my job. <laughs> okay. Let me give you background. There's a, con- there's a bit of a, not a controversy, but the traditional history says Queen Esther chapter number one was the first chapter. That was what was written. And then later research found these other chapters. But like I said, Queen Esther is here in D.C. and I'm the historian for D.C. So I'm just going to try to keep my job. <laughs> OK, gotcha. <laughs> well, well, you know what, James? This was awesome. Like I told you yesterday when we were doing our little test, our tech test, the show is lighted for an hour. But right. we always go over and we are way over. It's an hour and 20 whole minutes. This has Good been morning. an awesome conversation. And um. Oh, Tiffany said her mom has been an Eastern star since 1982. Hey, there you go. Yeah, so, um, but I want to thank you again for, you know, just coming out and talking with us and everything. And um, guys, we have placed the links for the Think Tank. We've placed the link for the book. There's also a Facebook page. All you have to do is search the Empire, the the Lost Empire and, and the rest of the name of the book, which is... The Lost Empire, Black Freemasonry in the Old West, 1867 to 1906. There is a Facebook link. Um, You can also buy the book from there. You can buy the book from the the link that we gave you. 
One last, I guess, final question. Do you have any upcoming events where you're speaking or um, doing any book signings in different areas, things of that nature? Uh, yes, actually, I do. Um, I'm actually going to be speaking at the, um, uh, man, I want to make sure I say it. Bethel Dukes, the Bethel Dukes branch of um, Asala uh, here in D.C. Uh, I'm going to be there on April the 28th. Uh, they they meet at the Woodridge Library, uh, which is, I believe is on Rhode Island Avenue. Uh, mm -hmm. So I'll I'll be there speaking on the book, uh, and I have a couple other um, pending events. I'm supposed to be going. To, I got invited to New York, uh, so look out. So look be on the lookout for that. I'll be posting out on social media and whatnot as well. Uh, possibly uh, potentially Texas, which I'm very excited to, be, to to try to go to Texas to talk about the book. Uh, you just got back from New Mexico. Uh, last week promoting the book. As a matter of fact, uh, yes, the award. We, we won, yeah, we won the uh, the Charles H. Wesley uh, Medal for History. So the book is now an award-winning uh, book. Uh, so you know, I've, I've been all over the place. I've been, I, we, the book has been out since December. Um, we've been to New Jersey, which is my home state. Uh, we've been here in Maryland. We had a book launch here in D.C. So uh, you know, the reception has been really great, and. Um, you know, I'm just very excited to uh, be telling the story, and I'm very thankful to Denisha for asking me that question four years ago. I keep telling her to not to ask me any more questions because <laughs> I, I really this 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 really started off with like one Facebook post and a newspaper article, and then it expanded into taking over my life for four years. Yeah, um, now five years basically. So so you know, well, yeah, yeah, but but I've been very blessed. She is to you what I am to Donia. I made Donia write an entire chapter for her book. There you uh. go. <laughs> there you go. Well, see, if Denisha was here, I would, I'm sure she would say you need to come harder than that because she got me doing a 500-page book, you know, which again... <laughs> I, I'm, I'm telling you, they, 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 you know, those, those, those Brian and Denisha's, they are off the chain. They are some worrisome people. Brian literally waited until my book was completed. And do you know... My first chapter was the last chapter written because he said, oh, wow. you're missing a chapter. And I'm like, what? You need to write the first chapter. I have a first chapter. Oh. And he was like, no, you got a whole nother chapter you need to write. And I'm like, oh, my yeah. God. You there? So, and, and, yeah. and, and, and I'll tell you something, something which is crazy is that uh, I'm actually um, editing another book for a friend of mine. And so uh, it's dealing with, um, with Masons in Oklahoma. And um, one of the people in there, in that particular book, come to find out his grand, his son or grandson or something like that intermarried with Denisha's Bruce relative. So that story connects to this story that we already wrote about. And it's like, oh, God, I just told her, I said, look, I quit. I don't want to hear from you, your family. <laughs> I, 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 I love Denisha, but I'm like, good Lord. <laughs> yeah, and she's sitting up here, she's saying that you don't mean that. And, and, and she said how she stayed in your ear every day. She sounds exactly like Brian. And I told Brian the same thing. I don't want to talk to you no more. I'm, I'm done. Oh, no, and oh, God, no. when you went through that Moses Williams thing and, mm -hmm. and finding those 40, finding out the man, that man had 45 children, right. I, that's why I was very adamant. I'm like, Brian, I'm not doing that research for 45 kids. You can forget it. Right. And right, what am right, I doing? Right. I'm right. doing research for 45 kids. Absolutely. So yeah, she sounds just like Brian. Absolutely. No, 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 no. She, she, she really is a sweetheart. A matter of fact, uh, I had her to um to write an intro to the book and everything like that. Uh, you know, and again, this it really it's funny how genealogy and family history really can take so many turns for you. Um, 
you know, in, in doing this research, I thought that I was just helping somebody out, you know, maybe find a good, maybe I, I thought maybe I'd get a good, you know, article out of it to write about or something like that. But lo and behold, we found all this history that literally rewrote the history of one of the oldest, uh, not only right. one of the oldest American institutions, but arguably Black Freemasonry is the oldest African-American uh, in- institution, you know, um, that we can that we can show so we literally rewrote a piece of american history and put it back i didn't get to to talk about today why some of this information was was erased from the history as much as i as i wish i had but um we we literally made history off of one newspaper article so that's why i tell people you find one you find those little stories and things don't just delete them don't just put them somewhere off to the side those things do matter somebody wrote it down for a reason so yes you're right and and the thing is is that we have we have our families. I want, and I want to say this to everybody: all of our families have stories out there that are movie worthy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it, everybody has at least one person in their family that's movie worthy, and and you need to search them, and you need to search them out, not for the movie, but just for the history. Right. Because right. if the history, if we search these families out the way that we should, American history will be rewritten. Absolutely. And it'll be written in the way that it was supposed to have been written in the first place. So um, I want to thank you again, you know, for really, you know, for showing up and definitely showing out because you're, this this was an awesome thing. And I can't wait. I do have the book, y'all. I do have it. I just got some things going on, but I have my book and I am going to read it. And I'm, you know, just very grateful and thankful for you showing up. Anything you want to say, Brian? Thank you very much for sharing your Sunday with us. It's my pleasure. Thank you. For, thank you for having me. All right. All right. Well, um, Brian, you want to talk about if, when we're having another show or you want to just wait or what? Um, that's going to be a special announcement. But just to let everyone know that we have two specials coming up in um, May. One is with um, a lady called Karen, who's written a book about the first 25 Africans to land in Virginia. So we're very excited to have her. And we're also going to be speaking with a Jewish genealogist who's going to give us tips and tricks about Jewish genealogy, which hopefully will be, you know, give you transferable skills and give you new research strategy to research your own family. All right. Okay, guys. Well, it is going on 5.30. Wow. Uh, James, I think you might be, you might have just caught up with our longest show, which was the show about the Sheila Project. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> oh, man. Uh, yeah, I think so. I think you just kind of, you you might have either, either surpassed it or or right at it. But um, so, 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 that, so now the book has won two awards. Won two awards. That's right. There we go. <laughs> All right. Well, um, thanks, guys. Thanks for listening in. And, you know, you can always if you miss the show, if you relate to the show, you can always go on Genealogy Adventures Facebook page and look at our videos and it will pop up there. And it's also on our YouTube channel, Genealogy Adventures. So I'm Danya. And not that you can see me. I'm Brian. (laughs) You guys have a great day. Bye. Bye. Bye, everybody.